The Money Show. Shapeshifters. So that shapeshifter has been working in solving problems for decades. Uh, his name is Dr. Ernest Darko, board member now of the Schwab Foundation and a founding partner at Broadreach. Now, Broadreach, he and his co-founder, Dr. John Sargent, were awarded the title of Social Entrepreneurs of the Year at the World Economic Forum in Davos in 2015. And what you did was, Ernest Darko, provide... Uh, a revolutionary access to healthcare for populations that desperately needed it, people in remote areas. Explain to me, please, what uh, uh, how you've changed the world. Uh, Bruce, it's an honor and a pleasure to be on your show and to speak with you again. We actually spoke last in 2015. So what we've basically been doing is trying to figure out, in particular in low-resource settings, how do you best match the scarce supply of health resources with the large demands placed on it. And to do this by leveraging the latest emerging technologies, um, in essence, using those as a game changer that helps us even the odds that otherwise we'd not be able to surmount using the old non-technological methods. So we use artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, you know, big data analytics, uh, to, in essence, try and create re- revolutionary shifts in the ability to deliver good quality care. And we've seen some success so far. Now, none of the people receiving this care really care what you do in order to achieve it. There's an enormous technological drive and investment. I'm sure, like most things, like my my smartphone, I, I don't care what the mechanism is inside as long as I get pretty pictures and I get onto the internet and do what I need to do on it. I mean, it, it's about using these very complex technologies to deliver uh, very sophisticated but simple-to-use solutions. Absolutely, Bruce. And I think if we actually do our job well, people should not actually have to know we exist, right? They will just experience on-time care, good quality care, uh, you know, budgets will somehow be enough to address the challenges that they need to, to, to address. So in essence, people don't need to know how the watch works. They just need to know the time. And we yeah. focus on giving them the time. What was the origin of this idea? I mean, where did you dream up the idea of using tech, you and Dr. John Sargent, to, to, to change consumer experiences of healthcare? I think the origin, Bruce, was when we ourselves as a company began to collapse under the weight of more and more work that we were acquiring across the continent. So at some point, you know, we were over, you know, 1,500 staff. We had been, we were trying to support over 1,500 facilities across the continent and doing this manually just did not make sense. And doing it manually results in situations where you are dealing with data that is three months, six months, nine months old, and yet trying to move forward productively, but with retrospective data. The analogy we like to use is you're trying to drive forward by looking in the rearview mirror. It just did not make sense. And so for us, we realized that there must be a better way of doing this than people flying all over, doing the same spot analyses over and over and over, just because we didn't have a better mechanism of gathering this data and turning it into real time, 
or on-demand insights. So we have been doing quite a bit of work using business intelligence tools um, with our private sector clients. And we felt that why don't we apply this to some of our public sector work um, where it could really have large impact. So what we basically did was take what we knew in our heads from what we used to do manually and in essence made the computer do a lot of what we previously did manually. So I estimate right now that our technology platform can do about 85% of what we used to run around with clipboards <laughs> and and do manually. We can do 85% of it sitting at my desk here in Cape Town. I mean, and it's extraordinary, especially in a time of COVID, where we are cautious of moving around and prefer not to if we can possibly avoid it. If you can automate, um, it, it becomes not only a question of efficiency, but possibly even one of survival. Oh, absolutely. And in, in our particular case, um, you know, it's, it is a matter of survival. And it also is a matter of whether or not we will ever be able to sort of catch up with the rest of the world um, and thrive as a continent. At this particular point, when you look at the resource imbalance between Africa and the rest of the world, it is staggering, right? Um, I like to give the example of, you know, Canada, right? Um, Canada, with a population of slightly less than 40 million people, um, has something like half the number of healthcare workers on the entire African continent of 1.2 billion people, mm. right? Uh, so when you, when you look at that type of scenario and say, yet we have bigger health challenges in Canada, we have bigger uh, chronic disease, bigger infectious disease, bigger poverty, you know, uh, big, you know, bigger civil unrest, and, you know, and yet we're supposed to accomplish this in essence a micro fraction of what the developed world has. It, it's, it, it's just unconscionable. And to think that the developed world is struggling with their resources that they have, right? <laughs> so for us to think we're going to do this and somehow, yes, we're going to train up enough medical professionals to overcome this, it will probably take five lifetimes or more. So if we, we strongly believe we can actually uh, use technology to leapfrog a lot of this gap if we're smart about it and if we have the right sort of thinking and collaborations in place. I mean, there's so much talk of leapfrogging because, I mean, in order to play catch-up in a conventional sense, um, it's if you've ever lost control on a treadmill, you know what it's like when you've made it just a little bit too fast <laughs> and you and you get tired a bit more quickly than you'd anticipate uh, and you, you're, you fall on your face. Um, uh, and that's essentially what's happening as we try traditional mechanisms to, to play catch-up. How do we leapfrog? I mean, you talk if this, if that, if this, we need if that, if, and there's so many ifs, buts, and maybes in this process. I mean, I know we've got to try, but it feels insurmountable. Well, I think first and foremost, we need to change our thinking. Uh, traditionally, uh, the healthcare sector has been, I think, one of the slowest sectors to adopt new technologies on the planet, right? And I'm not just speaking in terms of the here and now. This is going back to the days, you know, thousands of years ago with Hippocrates and Galen. Um, you have a situation, for example, where it took the health sector, it de they, were, they were delayed by 200 years to adopt the use of thermometers, even though thermometers existed, right? 200 years delay. And, and, and I think as we sit here today, we still kind of are stuck in this model where we're slow to adopt new things aggressively. And I think the thinking has to change 
when we look at the reality, and, and like I pointed out the Canada example, you can look at that example and say we aggressively need to change how we're doing things in order to succeed. Or you can look at that example and say, yes, I'm going to now send a bunch of kids to medical school um, to train for the next 30 years and then come back and help us. And I think if we first start by acknowledging the, just the, the, the raw brutality of the situation that we have, and then we open ourselves up to saying, therefore, what can we do better? And the beauty is we don't have to necessarily do things that have never been done before. We can adopt best practices um, from places where they've actually done some of these things and proven the case. So it's not really a pure Hail Mary, you know, I'm trying something that's never been tried. We can still do it in a very measured way, but we can take advantage of what's already been done at scale in, in, in across the world and, and take those adaptations and make them come alive here to rapidly help us gain and rebalance the scales. Practically speaking, how would I, as a user of your service, experience Broadreach? Um, so the way you'd experience our, um, our technology would be, let's say you are a district manager in, in, in South Africa. Uh, your typical district has between, let's say, uh, 75 and 100 health facilities. On the first Monday of the month, you'll get an email um, auto-generated by the AI and the machine learning from the technology, telling you, for example, that um, in, uh, you know, in HIV treatment, um, these are the six clinics that are dragging you down. They are causing 74% of your gap. So six of, let's say, your 100 clinics alone are causing this massive problem, meaning that you do not have to go and fix all 100 clinics. You just need to fix these six to get a 74% pickup in your result. Now, why this is really critical is without this kind of insight, that when, you have, when I've met these district managers without that insight, they will just tell me, Ernest, I'm broken. There's nothing I can do. I, I, I know I have these bad results, but I don't have enough nurses. I don't have enough staff. I need, you know, 500 more nurses. I need, you know, you know, this many more, you know, millions or billions of rand in order to, to, to fix myself. However, the analysis has now shown you that it's a six clinic issue. And now you look at your budget in light of six clinics and that's doable, right? So it transforms first the mindset of what can and cannot be done. And then you can focus your scarce resources on fixing the six instead of wasting your time trying to fix all hundred, like what I call trying to spread the butter evenly on the bread when the bread doesn't need the butter evenly. So that's the first thing that um, our system would give you, the Vantage system. The second thing that it will give you is in those locations where, for example, you are not um, uh, achieving the right results of getting people on treatment, it will then give you the next set of instructions on what to do to improve and increase the numbers on treatment. So for example, you need to do a community testing campaign. And so what it will do is it will give you a step-by-step -step instructions on people's mobiles and devices that walk them through what to do in the best practice way to implement a high quality campaign. The reason why this is important is if I just tell a large group of health workers go and implement a campaign, I'll get as many different campaigns as the health workers who I ask to do it, and none of them will usually be right. So to, to have good quality implementation at scale, um, consistent and high quality all the time, it's critical that we start to align 
uh, around tools that help you manage the quality mm. at large scale. And the beauty of this is I can see what all my workers are then doing on a daily basis. I can see who's floundering. I can contact them immediately and say, what's going on here? I noticed, for example, for three days, your result has been zero. What's been going on? I don't have to fly there and rent a rental car, drive out to you in order to have that conversation. I can do that from my desk. And then if you really need me, then I fly out. So it's massive, massive savings in terms of economics, time, but most importantly, it creates a pathway to to, to speedily get results that otherwise would have taken a very long time. We're talking to Dr. Ernest Darker, board member of the Schwab Foundation, founding partner at Broadreach, talking about how to make healthcare more accessible to more people, more efficiently, more cost-effectively, and with better results. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Dr. Ernest Darko is our shapeshifter this evening. He has got medical and public health degrees from Harvard. He did his MBA at Oxford's Said Business School. Um, he's been fated by elites around the world. Time magazine made him an, one of 18 global health heroes. Um, he is also now on the board of the Schwab Foundation. How important is that? I mean, the World Economic Forum is criticized by many people. I happen to be a fan of Davos. I don't like everything it represents, but certainly it gets people talking and gets people connected. What what power does it bring to you, one, being recognized by the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship, but then being invited into the inner circle of the Schwab Foundation uh, to, to increase your global potential, I suppose, your global reach? Well, well thanks, Bruce. I think, you know, for me... Um, Uh, One, I'm really grateful to the Schwab Foundation because first and foremost, it gave social entrepreneurs like ourselves an identity. You know, they actually coined the term. And prior to that term, people sort of looked at us, you know, askance like, what do you mean you're a business that's trying to do social stuff, right? It's, you know, people really didn't kind of understand that you could use, try to use market mechanisms to solve large social programs as as or social problems as a means of actual true sustainability, right? And so them giving us that identity and platform, I think, was key. Um, being able to be exposed to world leaders at every level of, um, you know, different institutions, different companies is critical for groups like ourselves who otherwise would never be able to have access to these individuals and to to dialogue with them, influence their thinking, um, you know, change minds, make them aware of things, for example, that they may not have been aware of. And what I love about Davos is they welcome dissenting opinions, right? So they and and it's they managed to make it a safe enough forum where wildly disparate parties are both willing to come there and sit in the same room and have a civil discussion. So I think it's a really powerful um, uh, format. And finally, for me, the main thing really I hope to do in my board role is to contribute to to identifying more social entrepreneurs and helping them to scale up their models because I really do believe many of them in various ways have solved some of these grand challenges of our times and have solutions that are viable and cost-effective but just need to be scaled up if given the right chance and the right platform. And I really want to help make that a reality. 
I mean, because this idea of social entrepreneurship is so noble. I mean, you're not in it to make the big bucks, but it needs to uh, it needs to have funding, and it, it can even become you know a profit generating entity eventually because you need to be able to self fund ultimately um, the the changes that you want to bring upon the world. Absolutely. I mean, I think the we have to accept that nothing is free, right? You know, um, and and even if you're getting a free service, someone is paying for it. You know, if you're getting free healthcare, it's because people are paying taxes. Those taxes are taxes on businesses because I've used, I've bought airtime and I've bought bread, and you know, and that created jobs and those jobs created salaries. So, everything, nothing is free. And I think the, you know, we really have to dispel ourselves of this sense that things are free and really focus on how can you create value, how can you you know, do good, you know, do well by doing good, right? And in particular in Africa, I think there's a big danger right now, um, in particular with high donor dependency, et cetera, that we're actually sort of destroying our economies. And we have all these young people, for example, who need jobs, but then you'll find um, they they can't get jobs because that thing has been donated, as opposed to them being allowed to create an industry or a company that that meets that that societal need in a sustainable way. And so I think we have to be really careful at this particular juncture in time, in particular with technology, being this massive opportunity for the continent um, to, to capitalize on this fourth industrial revolution for our benefit as a continent, as opposed to once again, talk ourselves out of it or policy ourselves out of it. And again, then be in a position where we're consuming from the rest of the world, but not producing things ourselves. Technology is a young people's game, and we need to have our young people get on board with this because that's our path to having real jobs um, in, in, in the current world and being competitive. Uh, you, you're the first person I've spoken to in about a year who's used the term fourth industrial revolution. Generally, I, I recoil because I just think it's a term that has been so badly abused by people who have not got the foggiest idea of just how much work it takes. Um, uh, you know, just the the, you know, the technology is wonderful, but you still need the human input and the intellect and the ability to to make it work efficiently for the benefit of humanity. And, uh, you know, as it, it's a it's a term generated by the World Economic Forum, and I think you're in the right place for it. Absolutely, um, and and I think what I'm trying to get at here is, you know, you have so many bright young people, and I've met so many in South Africa who are developing apps, developing new technologies. And the point is, if they're in a position where, for example, the government will never do business with them, right? Um, you know, or they can't raise funding to grow their businesses, etc. I mean, the reality is we're going to then be buying apps built by, you know, young people from America or China or India and not, again, ourselves. And when you look at the moment at what do we really produce as a continent, I don't think we can afford to, again, become purely consumers when it comes to technology. This is a there's nothing stopping us from competing with the best um, at the global levels when it comes to technology. And we should therefore create the most enabling environment for this sector to, to really flourish, you know, within our African continent.
Dr. Ernest Darker, lovely to have you on. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Uh, Dr. Ernest Darker started Broadreach with his co-founder, Dr. John Sargent, and uh, um, they started that in 2003. And by 2015, were recognized by the World Economic Forum as Social Entrepreneurs of the Year and revolutionizing the delivery of more efficient, more effective healthcare services. And now, uh, Ernest Darker has been appointed uh, to the Schwab Foundation, which is a lovely accolade after years of hard slog.